Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now. Today's guest is Willie Wu, on-chain Bitcoin analyst and writer of The Bitcoin Forecast, a market intelligence newsletter. Welcome, Willie. Hey, Laura. Great to be back. This was quite the week for Bitcoin and crypto in general, with PayPal announcing that it will allow its 346 million customers to hold Bitcoin, Ether, and other cryptocurrencies, as well as use them to pay at PayPal's 26 million merchants. At the news, the price of Bitcoin shot up, briefly flirting with $13,000. What do you make of PayPal's news? Ah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's it's very much um, significant. Uh, if you were to look at on-chain exactly how many people are actually holding Bitcoins in their wallet, wallet currently, there's only 23.4 million holders on-chain. And if you count the exchanges, there's 101 million um, active, unique accounts. Um, so if you look at PayPal, it's almost five times that. It's 487 million. So, you know, there's this absolute um, unlock to the mainstream market here to access Bitcoin, uh, way in excess of what we currently have in numbers. Before that news broke, you had been tweeting a bit about how Bitcoin's price behaviors have been changing. One of your tweets showed a chart of coin dormancy against the Bitcoin price, and you tweeted, Dormancy is a measure of old hands selling out. It's interesting to see old hands reliably sold tops until this present cycle. They sold the Bitcoin bottom at $3,000 to $4,000 they are selling right now. So when you say this, this present cycle, what time period are you talking about? And why do you think the behavioral behavior of old hands is changing? Yeah, this this is the current cycle. Bitcoin cycles every four years because of the halvening. That's kind of the impulse of um, of uh, supply reduction. And so we get into these four-year macro cycles. And this particular cycle is interesting in that uh, we had the first um, derivative exchanges with the likes of BitMEX uh, introduced in the tail end of 2017. And with the crazy leverages these guys can do on these exchanges – they um, they have dominated the volume on uh, against um, you know the the organic spot markets where people would normally come in and buy 
their coins and move them off into their wallets. So when you've got this outlier volume um, on derivative markets where traders come in and trade against each other, they play a whole lot of strategic games, you know, defensive lines. I, I liken it to playing a game of gridiron where you're going for yards and you're trying to push the other side over and then it, they backtrace. And so we're in this era of derivative dominance where it's trader games. So you'll see that if you look at the chart of Bitcoin, um, we had this very nice organic um, movements in price. It was very reflective of fundamentals of um, investors coming in. And since 2017, the tail end of 2017, really coming into 2018 and into now, we've had uh, a crazy whipsaw in the price action. It's like you can see at the 6,000 sort of band that we had in 2018 and then it plummeted down to 3,000. That was all trader games on on uh, derivative exchanges. And so what I think's happening is that the old hand whales, the OGs that bought into Bitcoin way back when, and they're obviously highly capitalized, and they've always been able to sell tops, they're not currently equipped to play these very sophisticated um, trader games that are happening on derivative exchanges. And so they're, they're not selling the tops, they're selling the bottoms right now. And so I don't fully understand, you know, when you talk about this kind of game, what is it, you know, just from a, a hodler perspective, it should be, you know, something straightforward. You buy low, you sell when it's high. So what is going on exactly that's keeping them from being able to do that? You know, there's obviously as a hodler, you're going to organically buy and hold for a long term sort of hold. But if you're on these derivative exchanges, all you're doing is making bets, long or short. The prices go one way or the other. And if I'm correct, I make a lot of money. And so what actually happens is that if you see, for example, um, the general market, the general traders, um, which are the unsophisticated traders, um, they may be going long. And so if you're the, the winner, um, you're the whale on derivative exchanges, uh, and the winners tend to be 1% of the market, uh, according to BitMEX, 99% lose. Uh, you are the guy with um, tens of millions of dollars of what we call ammo um, to be able to push the market one way. So, for example, if everyone's going long um, and I'm that 1%, well, I'm going to short it and I'm going to sell and I'm going to sell and I'm going to sell. I may even sell on spot exchanges to to push the price down. And I'm trying to push the price down below the defensive line of um, people going long. Because if you're going long, um, you're betting on it going up, but you do have this um, line in the sand where if you're wrong, you're either liquidated or you have a stop loss where you're going to sell out. Both both cases, you're going to sell out. So what um, the whales do is they they counter trade you, they push the price below your defensive line, and at that point you have to sell in, and then suddenly the price plummets, and then um, they'll scoop up at the bottom and they win. And so you know that happens whether you're long or short. The the ninety nine percent will lose, and this is a derivative you know casino game. With with very very smart sophisticated players um, 
that have now entered Bitcoin and it is completely wrecking havoc with the organic price of Bitcoin. And so you were saying, so when, when did you start seeing this happen? Because, you know, the, from your tweet, it seemed that you were saying that before this cycle, old hands would reliably sell the top. So, um, you know, when, when did this period begin? And, you know, is it simply the fact that there was not a way for these whales to use this leverage in this way before? Okay, so um, BitMEX started tailing in 2017. I think it gained ex- significant volume by the tail end of uh, the early start of 2018. And so that created the vehicle. And I'm not saying these whales on different exchanges are our OG whales that bought, you know, when Bitcoin was $1 or, or $10. These guys are very sophisticated players. They probably come from Wall Street. Um, they know how to trade on margin which is everything that's happening in traditional Wall Street finance. So um, it's a different game. It's a different game. And we've been in this era since 2018. It's been two years. The interesting thing now is with the likes of uh, MicroStrategy and the cohort of um, CEOs and board of directors, offices of companies that are now currently scooping up coins and putting them into their own wallets, corporate wallets, personal wallets, that um, we're starting to get a swing back into the organicness where spot volumes, the organic buying and holding volumes are now starting to come back against this derivative game. And also we've got the CFTC starting to regulate um, the unregulated derivative exchanges like BitMEX. Um, So we'll see pressure there uh, and the, yeah, I, I think this is a very short era of two to three years and we'll come back to an organic um, like price discovery of Bitcoin. In a moment, we'll discuss how this should impact the way the price in Bitcoin changes. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Back to my conversation with Willie Wu. So as you were discussing, you feel like the, I don't know if the, uh, how to describe it, whether it's like the power or the balance of, (laughs) I guess, where the market is determining the price, you feel like that that's swinging back to the spot market. So what effect do you think that will have on price moves in Bitcoin? So we'll see less exaggerated price moves. um, And like, it's, it'll, yeah, essentially, it'll be less exaggerated. I, I think a lot of people are losing money um, because they're getting freaked out by these very large whipsaw prices. And so ultimately what happens is that we'll start to lower um, volatility. Um, you know, I did a study a long time ago, maybe 2017, showing that Bitcoin was on track to be um, the match the volatility of the most volatile um, fiat currencies, um, like the New Zealand dollar, US dollar pair. Um, And that was completely wrong because 
<laughs> these derivative exchanges came in, it whipsawed the price and volatility went to the moon. And so volatility will reduce and that will encourage um, more um, of the, the organic investors to come in. Um, obviously, as volatility reduces, the risk starts to reduce. And obviously, Bitcoin is an outside sort of outlier uh, gainer. It's like a startup that's accumulating on its adoption S-curve. And so what scares people is the crazy whipsaw of volatility, um, and that was exaggerated by these derivative gains. And so the risk starts to drop for um, investors. And you mentioned that you feel like you've been seeing the purchase of Bitcoin by these big corporate treasuries like MicroStrategy and Square. How are you discerning that? Okay, so uh, it's it's very hard to track, and the best I have right now is that if you look back in the history of um, all prior bull runs, you'll see the sort of dip um, in the the stock, the Bitcoin stocks, the speculative stock that's sitting on um, spot exchanges, and so um, that is a sign of new hodlers coming in and buying those bitcoins and moving it off to cold storage and hodling. And so that's a very consistent pattern. Um, we saw it in 2016 before the moon run of 2017. We saw it in the, the 3,000, 4,000 bottom of 2019. And currently we are seeing the mother of all um, scoop-ups off these spot exchanges and moving them to cold storage. It's never been this long. It's never been this amount. Um, it's currently nine months, and it's still being scooped up. And I just see a little dip right now, meaning uh, post, um, post PayPal, there's a whole lot of people buying and moving it off to hodling. So um, and then to put that in perspective, that's a um, quarter of a million Bitcoins moved out um, Probably they paid around $2 billion for it. So $2 billion of money has come in buying those coins. So, yeah, that's what I'm seeing. That's that's um, what's driving this um, current um, bullish activity. And it's only just begun. And how are these different shifts in the market affecting the business of various infrastructure players? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. It's like, uh, you know, I'm an investor in a few um, infrastructure players and um, obviously I get information um, of their, their traction and, and what's been very interesting for me is that months and months and months ago, we're already at all-time high of um, user um, activity, um, new users coming on board higher than the 2017 December top. And so the activity that's going on underlying um, this industry is at already all-time highs when Bitcoin was valued at $20,000. So obviously that's a, a crazy fundamental bullish um, signal. So recently you've been tweeting about how much the Bitcoin price moves for every dollar invested. And I wondered, how do you calculate that? And then based on that, what would you project for the price of Bitcoin over the next year? Okay, so uh, Coinmetrics was um, very well known for doing this metric called realized price. And um, it's realized cap, you can map it back to price. 
essentially what it is is looking into um, the blockchain and seeing when um, hodlers bought their coins, figuring out what they paid for it, and then you can figure out what the market paid for their coins. And I think that's roughly in the $67,000 zone right now. Um, and so you can track what people have actually put into Bitcoin through that metric. Um, and then you can also track the um, actual um, valuation of Bitcoin's market cap. So between the two capitalizations, and you can see the, the, the change in, in um, capital coming in versus the change in, in market cap growth through these two metrics, it's, and obviously the ratio of dollar go up per dollar invested and that that's sitting currently very roughly estimated. There's errors in it, but it's three point five to one. And it's and the interesting thing about it is that it is ramping upwards. All prior bull markets was very static. This time, the dollar in for dollar increase is climbing, and what that means is the reflexivity is increasing. And that's just a big fancy term for. As price goes up, the hodlers hold on tighter. They don't want to sell. It's the first time we've seen that. And in terms of what that means is that um, if Bitcoin needs to be a $1 trillion market cap um, macro asset bucket, all macro asset buckets are going in the trillions of dollars, uh, we need roughly um, $200 billion of influx of capital to push us there. And that's roughly $50,000 um, for Bitcoin. Huh. Okay. Like by what, a year from now or? It doesn't make any predictions on a price oh. target. It just says this is how much money that needs to come in. Um, and, oh, okay. It's just, and so, this, right. It's yeah. just based on when we see that amount of money come in. That's right. And we've already seen at a very minimum um, $2 billion scooped up off the exchanges. Uh, we have, $5 trillion in corporate treasuries that are sitting in cash and needing to hedge from inflation and money printing. We have $8.5 trillion to $9 trillion in sovereign wealth funds that are um, needing access to Bitcoin just to have an optimal portfolio. So, uh, and I believe this is the cycle where the very first sovereign wealth funds will come into Bitcoin. Um, they've been researching this for well over a year. And what makes you say that? And when you say this cycle, you mean what the, for the over the next three years? Or, or? yeah, so this cycle started. Um, you know, uh, the Bitcoin top happened in um, 20, December twenty seventeen, and the cycles are four year cycles. So that means that um, twenty seventeen um, plus four years is twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two. Within that time band, um, we can expect this to happen. And what makes you say that you believe that sovereign wealth funds will start getting into Bitcoin in this time period? Just conversations within the industry. All right. Well, we'll see um, how this plays out. Um, before we go, I wanted to also ask about uh, Bitcoin's NVT ratio, which is the network value to transaction ratio, because you're pr pretty well known for frequently analyzing that. And I wondered if you could, first of all, explain a little bit more about what that is and then um, talk a little bit about a recent tweet you made that Bitcoin's price was at an NVT ratio equivalent to the white swan price bottom from Black Thursday during the initial part of the pandemic. And I just wondered, 
with PayPal's news this week, if that has changed or if you also feel like now it's um, still a good time to buy. Yeah. Okay. So um, obviously it's, a, it's extremely great time to buy. <laughs> um, so MBT was the first um, on-chain signal where you could say buy here, sell there. Um, and so essentially the easy way to understand it is the price, it's the equivalent of the price earnings ratio for um, Bitcoin. In a company, you have stock price, you have earnings. In Bitcoin, it's a store of value asset like gold. You do not have earnings. But we do have is underlying investor activity, like new investors coming out and there's a constant churn. And the higher you see that churn, um, the higher the velocity of this Bitcoin's moving to new investors, uh, the more fundamental activity in the network. So it's a ratio of the, the valuation, the market cap to that, that, that activity and that creates this price earnings ratio for Bitcoin. And um, what you want to see, obviously, is you want this PE ratio, MVT, to drop low. If it drops low, it means there's incredible amounts of investor activity that is not yet reflected in the price. And so MVT ratio, um, it it plummeted into a buy zone um, in the COVID white swan crash Um I think most of that was derivative traders getting wrecked and it pushed the price down. There was not much um, activity on chain between hodlers selling out and um, it was the perfect time to buy if you wanted more exposure to Bitcoin. And currently the amount of activity going on in the blockchain of new investors coming in is through the roof and it's pushed that ratio back down into that zone where um, you know it was grossly undervalued for um, only a few days during the crash and now we're in the same zone but it's driven by incredible amounts of organic um, buying investor activity that's not yet reflected in the price and we're only seeing more activity now with the 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 paypal um, um announcement and um a lot new people not a lot new more people coming in i'm actually seeing this on the metrics right now that there's a lot of new participants coming in so um, yeah, just it's 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 perfectly a, a great time to buy if you're in it for um, the you know the year or multi-year period. Okay. One last question: You mostly cover Bitcoin and have said that you don't cover Ether because you don't consider it as investable. But I wanted to ask what you thought of what Ether would become, whether it would become more investable with staking coming on with Ethereum 2.0 and also the potential adoption of Ethereum Improvement Proposal 1559, which would entail the burning of transaction fees. Okay, so um, I'm not saying it's not investable. I'm just saying that it's got a very, very short backtrace of of its performance. And in risk-adjusted returns, um, Ethereum's more risky, but it's higher returns. Um, In risk-adjusted returns, it slightly underperforms Bitcoin. Um, therefore, I think it's fine if you want to do like a macro hold in bull cycles, you swing into Ethereum, um, you get the outside outsized um, returns, and then you're going to expect some outsized um, losses in the bear market. So I think it's perfectly fine for that. Um, even if you want to hold multi-cycles, that's fine as well because it performs roughly like Bitcoin, but it's very untested. It's the backtrace is ridiculously small compared to the length of Bitcoin that's been over twelve years. I think is it twelve years now? Yeah, almost twelve years. 
for Bitcoin. Ethereum is very new, and we barely have one full cycle, um, four-year cycle, um, analyzing that. Um, in terms of Ethereum 2, um, the problem with Ethereum 2 is that uh, it's sharded. And so each one of those shards has not got an idea of what's happening on the other shard. And in terms of plain English, what that means is that Ethereum 1, um, this entire DeFi space that is exploding based on um, financial apps and decentralized exchanges, they're all interoperable. I can go to one site and trade one ERC-20 for another. I can um, get tokens from that, from a liquidity pool. I can go to another app and I can um, lock that in. So there's a very interesting experimentation going on and, and it's, it's like a network effect that's building between different apps. Ethereum 2 suffers from this because the shard spaces, you get scalability but you can't have these apps interoperable between each other. So I feel that that's a significant problem. And we've got other, um, you know, networks that are coming up like Solana. We've got particularly Radix I'm excited about in that. It's scalable also, but you can build the um, the, the interoperability between these apps. Um, so I think there's going to be stronger competition for Ethereum 2. I think Ethereum 1 will continue to do well um, because it's got that store of value um, narrative that, you know, that's building, that's building. It's not hard money as much as Bitcoin, but that is building. Ethereum 2 is a little bit less tested. You do have the staking coming on. I was talking to a friend, um, founder of Stakehound, which uh, provides liquidity for people who are staking. Um, he's estimating maybe you'll get a 10% return um, by putting that into Ethereum and, and locking it up, which is not to be, um, you know, underrated. But I think there may be, you know, 10%, it might be outperformed by other um, other networks. Um, what was the final question around the... the Oh, it's just about the Ethereum improves, improvement proposal 1559 in which some of the transaction fees would be burned, potentially uh, making yeah. it deflationary. Yeah, that's a, that's, um, that's taking a book from the latest learning. So, yeah, that that helps a lot for sure. Um, that's, that's proven. That's what we've learned from other tokens where you burn and reduce supply. So in that regard, it's bullish um, in terms of its utility and people needing to be on it. Um, I think it has some problems and it, it's yet to be seen. So um, let's see what happens. All right. Great. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on Unconfirmed. That's awesome. Been fun reconnecting, Laura. Yes. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline. Crypto to come to PayPal. Bitcoin bounces. PayPal announced Wednesday that it would add support for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in the first half of 2021. The company plans to let its 346 million customers purchase and store the virtual currencies in its online wallet and use Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash for purchases at its 26 million merchants. PayPal also plans to expand support for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to Venmo in the first half of 2021. 
For the time being, PayPal will not give users access to private keys or the ability to transfer their crypto to other accounts on or off the platform. This decision was met with expected criticism from the crypto community. However, Sinem Hain Ventures partner Adam Cochran speculates that PayPal chose to do this because, quote, right now they want to profit on spread and need to get robust AML in place for transfers. My personal guess is that they also need to get the proper fraud protections in place so they don't get eaten alive by fraudsters stealing Bitcoins from their platform. The Block's Ryan Todd notes that PayPal operates in many jurisdictions that are not crypto-friendly, and so this move could force tax regulators to consider de minimis tax exemptions for paying with crypto. Reading between the lines of the investor relations release, in which the company mentions working with central banks and exploring other use cases, Todd also speculates that this is the first step of a larger plan to expand into central bank digital currencies and stablecoins. After the PayPal news, the price of Bitcoin saw a substantial rebound to $13,000 as of press time. On CNBC Thursday morning, billionaire hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones, who made news earlier this year when he invested in Bitcoin, compared investing in BTC to putting early money behind tech companies like Apple or Google. He said, quote, Bitcoin has this enormous contention of really, really smart and sophisticated people who really believe in it. I've never had an inflation hedge where you have a kicker, but you also have great intellectual capital behind it. When you short the bond market, that's your inflation hedge. You're really betting on the fallacy of mankind rather than its ingenuity and entrepreneurialism. So I like Bitcoin even more now than I did back then, Jones said. Next headline. Are Filecoin miners on strike? Several major Filecoin miners have halted or reduced their mining power since the network's mainnet launch last week. The blame for the slowdown is Filecoin's current economic incentive model, which many miners feel is not in their favor because it does not give block rewards to miners immediately, but instead vests over 180 days. Most of the top 10 miner IDs have significantly reduced the amount of storage power they've contributed during the testnet. A major Filecoin miner, Lee Bai, rejected the idea that the reduced mining power was an organized collective strike, saying, quote, It's not a strike. It's just a better strategy given the current economics. With more potential sell pressure when there's no adequate circulating FIL at a steady price range, it's not lucrative to pledge a spot FIL for a future FIL whose price could be lower. In a Twitter thread Monday, Protocol Labs founder and CEO Juan Benet called the miner strike nonsense. He said, quote, In the last two weeks, we, the devs, recommended to many miners to slow down growth rate to match their token flow or pause until they can afford to grow steadily. He continued, There are many people hoping to get rich quick with Filecoin without contributing value to the network. That's just not how this works. This isn't what the protocol rewards. We already have huge capacity and don't need much more yet. The network must now focus on making that capacity useful by storing valuable data for users. Next headline. Fed Chair Powell continues to ponder a digital dollar. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said during a panel discussion hosted by the International Monetary Fund on Monday that the U.S. continues to evaluate central bank digital currencies. Powell said a CBDC might improve the broader payment system in the U.S. and reiterated that the Fed has made no decision on a central bank digital currency at this time. He said, quote, I think it's more important for the United States to get it right than it is to be first. 
Next headline, Regulatory Roundup. A proposed judgment between Kick and the Securities and Exchange Commission would see Kick paying a $5 million fine over its 2017 token sale, as well as giving the SEC 45 days notice on any kin token transactions over the next three years. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network fined Helix and Coin Ninja founder Larry Dean Harmon $60 million for violations of the Bank Secrecy Act due to his operation of what they call virtual currency mixers. Coinbase published a transparency report of government requests that showed 97% were regarding criminal activity, with a vast majority from U.S. regulators. Of those, the FBI made up 30% of such inquiries. Homeland Security investigations comprised 17%, and state and local regulators accounted for 16%. Next headline, DC Digital Currency Group's State of Crypto 2020. Digital Currency Group's annual State of Crypto report, which polled the founders and CEOs of its 150 portfolio companies, paints a picture of an outperforming industry amidst the COVID-19 pandemic and resulting economic shockwaves. 2020 has seen Bitcoin volatility nearing all-time lows in the last half of the year as signs of a global economic slowdown have exacerbated local currency devaluation fears in emerging markets. While one in five executives cited remote work and operational interruptions due to COVID as a primary challenge faced in 2020, one in four also felt that a global recession would have the greatest impact on digital currency adoption. As for the greatest risk to the industry, 51% cited compliance and regulation as an impediment to sustainable growth. Respondents cited the rise of DeFi as the most bullish development of 2020. Those interviewed seemed unconcerned with the ebbs and flows of token prices, noting overall protocol development and business growth as boding well for the industry's future. They also contrasted the DeFi surge with the ICO bubble of 2017, noting that talent and professionalism are more productive and ethical than before. As for whether Ethereum would remain the chain of choice for DeFi, response was split, with 51% of respondents saying yes, and the rest saying they were unsure or no. Next headline. DeFi audit firms are overwhelmed with requests. Given the numerous exploits in unaudited DeFi contracts so far this year, it's perhaps no surprise that audit firms have been swamped with requests from DeFi projects. The demand has been strong despite a swift pullback in the DeFi markets, with most tokens falling 19% in the last month. Firms such as Open Zeppelin have said that they've booked clients well into 2021 with, quote, governance tokens, token clones of varying quality, making up much of the requests. Audit firm Quantstamp, which Disclosure has been a sponsor of my shows, said that it is, quote, rejecting lots of projects. Next headline. Protests in Nigeria highlight Bitcoin adoption. Protesters in Nigeria are calling for the disbandment of the special anti-robbery squad, aka SARS, accused of illegal murder, extortion, and torture of innocent civilians. And how are they funding their protests? Bitcoin. The Feminist Coalition, a Nigerian activist group that had initially started raising funds in multiple fiat currencies, found its bank accounts frozen within days and soon asked donors to divert their funds to Bitcoin wallets. By October 18th, the coalition had raised more than 7.2 Bitcoin, or $82,000, which accounts for 44% of the total funds raised so far. 
Likewise, Bundle CEO Yele Batamosi announced that the firm had set up crypto wallets to help raise funds locally in support of the protesters. Within a few days, that message had begun to spread with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey tweeting his support for the effort, among others. Bitcoin's use in this case highlights the broader adoption of crypto by a predominantly young, tech-savvy population of Nigerians. Crypto adoption in Nigeria has grown tremendously in the last year as citizens grapple with an inflationary local currency and a growing diaspora looking to send remittances home. Chainalysis ranked Nigeria eighth in its 2019 to 2020 Global Adoption Index. The country also ranked first among African countries in peer-to-peer payments, moving $139 million in the last year, as Nigeria's federal government makes plans to clear the way for blockchain adoption. If you're interested in hearing more about block Bitcoin and cryptocurrency adoption in Nigeria, be sure to check out the essay that Yale Badamosi and Suna Amaz wrote for Unchained back in the winter. I will link to it in the show notes. Time for fun bits. How Paradigm 3X'd its initial round in two years. My former colleague Alex Conrad at Forbes had a great feature out this week about Paradigm, the crypto VC firm founded by Matt Huang, previously of Sequoia Capital, and Fred Ersom, the co-founder of Coinbase. It details how they got marquee institutional investors like the Harvard and Stanford endowments to give them $750 million. And Huang and Ersom put it all into cryptocurrencies, mostly Bitcoin, when the bubble had truly deflated in 2018. As Conrad reports, quote, Bitcoin has tripled in value since Paradigm's investment, meaning aside from any other bets it's made, Paradigm's starting bankroll is already worth 3x. And in the newsletter, I put a little wow emoji. Next, fun bits. A timely throwback to a crypto world without PayPal. In response to the PayPal news this week, Charlie Shrem tweeted a photo of himself, Roger Ver, and Eric Voorhees at Money 2020 in 2012 for their then-company BitInstant. Charlie said, quote, we told them we wanted the best booth we could afford, but we needed to be next to the PayPal booth so we can show the world our financial system. Shapeshift CEO Eric Voorhees retweeted the photo and commented, I distinctly remember the PayPal folks snickering at us. And he then put a side eye emoji. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Willie, the Bitcoin forecast and Bitcoin, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of this episode. If you're a fan of Unconfirmed and want to help get the word out about our show, please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. 